Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Uh, we have with us uh, one of my favorite guests returning. And also, I only found out today, apparently, uh, your podcast is ending. So, uh, yeah. you know, if you could just tell people where to find you, I guess uh, new podcast will not be one of the places where they could find you. But, you know, just no. tell people who you are and where <laughs> to find you. Um, I'm Jessa Crispin. Um, I can be found, well, I'm a columnist for The Guardian. Um, I write for the usual various array of publications that everybody writes for, I feel like. Um, and yeah, if they if they want some sort of hub, jessacrispin.com kind of, you know, arranges everything. So yeah, that's about it. And the archive of back episodes is going to be there, I assume, right? Like oh, Yeah. There's like four years of just absolute nonsense for somebody to go through if they feel like it. <laughs> I'm so glad like I made it as a guest before it ended because I was, uh, I didn't want to ask, but I was holding out to be a guest for like a while. So I was, uh, I was uh, happy that I got to make it like close to the end. Like I feel like I just made the cut by like what, like a couple of months or something or actually with yeah. pandemic time, I don't know how to even uh, count time. So I, I count myself fortunate that I got to uh, be on it. Honestly, that is probably our most listened to episode at all. I mean, it's like you and ContraPoints on it. And also, that's the one that people always talk to, want to talk to me about is um, the episode that we did. So, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool because, you, you know, it's so weird. People always uh, tell me that this is not like I'm bragging, but uh, this is what people tell me. People always tell me that when I do an episode of the show, it like has these huge spikes, but the number that they give me don't match the numbers of my show. And I'm like, how is that even possible? <laughs> like, is it, is it like, is this very weird to me when people keep uh, telling me that? Because I'm like, no, the numbers on the measuring metrics that I have are like frightfully low compared to what you just told me. So it's always, <laughs> that's why I'm saying it's not a brag because it, it's just very weird to me. Like it's uh somehow that just seems seems to happen. I was like, send some of them over to my actual show somehow. I don't know. Yeah. If there's a crowd of people who just want to hear me, not on my own show, but <laughs> right. that's so funny. <laughs> You're like the fourth person to tell me that. It's so That's so, so weird. funny. <laughs> yeah, but um I've been a fan of you for uh, quite a while. So I Aww. Always like your thoughts on things, and I uh, didn't want to badger you, but I was hoping you would watch uh, the rest of this show. And <laughs> I ended up watching the rest of the show, even though I wasn't planning to. The episode's not going to be about this show, but mm -hmm. I think it ties in with the overall theme enough. And I think what helps is that the show is about uh, publishing. Uh, so to a degree, I, th I think as the show goes on, it's more and more about publishing yeah. As much as it is about, uh, you know, it's social issues. And the show is I May Destroy You. So, like, the topic of this episode was kind of like a spinoff of the episode that we did together, where we talked about trauma and, and publishing and literature. And you made, like, a really, really interesting point that really kind of stuck with me. And I thought at the time, I want to have you back on 
to talk about this topic. And it was, uh, actually, should I even rephrase it? I mean, you're here. I should let you, uh, if you can remember it. About was this the, about the imposters? Impos- yeah, yeah. Which is what's supposed to be about the main topic of this uh, episode is about your point about imposters. Yeah, so the literature of the turn of the century um, basically was, I don't know, I don't want to say that it was like overwhelmed with, but there were certainly like one scandal after another. And there were a couple of years for for several years of people who were sort of um, outed as being frauds. They had written a memoir or some other sort of autobiographical work that claimed some sort of identity or trauma that did not happen. So you had, I mean, the sort of like, yeah, the the easiest example is just James Fry, but these it was one after another. It was just so many of them. And then it seemed like we overcorrected into this idea of authenticity <laughs> um, as, a, as partially as a result of that era of fakes and imposters. But it's... In a paradoxical way, I feel like the authenticity trend or the overcorrection actually, in a weird way, leads to imposters because when you require authenticity all the time above everything, then if you can just fake the authenticity, like in the world where we didn't need to believe somebody really lived something to write about it or really had the identity, you know, would, you know, all these people have this need to be uh, fake. Like one of my favorite movies for like a long time was this movie called Nothing But a Man. And it has Ivan Dixon and it's about like the plight of, you know, what it's like to be a black man in America in the 60s and, you know, how your masculinity is always... um, cut off and everything and how you can't even be a man in your house uh, with your woman because the quote unquote man is, you know, emasculating you and, you know, in, in every way and you come home to your family and that's the one place where you can, you know, feel in charge of something. So you might take it out on your woman, like pretty interesting stuff. For years, I thought a black man was behind it. Turned out it was uh, a white man. And if that happened today, he wouldn't even get a shot to make the movie. He would have to probably use somebody as like a shield or something to, which I heard is what happened with this movie, Queen Slim. Like they say like uh, the guy who wrote, and this is full circle. How is this for full circle? Uh, The movie Queen Slim was like this kind of Black Lives Matter, um, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of music video type of movie, very shallow, very uh, think piece, master, think piece theater, you know? And uh, the story behind it, the rumors behind it, right, is that the guy who did, is it A Million Little Pieces? That's one of the big frauds, you know, the Oprah thing. Oh, it was James Fry? James Fry, yes, that's his name. James Fry. What? Yes. <laughs> James Fry is credited as the story but the screenplay is credited to Lena Waithe. And the story that Lena Waithe what? and James Fry gave is that he had this story. He met with Lena Waithe. And Lena Waithe kind of, like, you know, checked it, checked it and did the screenplay and gave it the authenticity based on his story idea. But the uh, industry rumor I heard is that he actually wrote the whole thing and the screenplay. And he just knew that he wasn't going to be able to sell it. So she was just used to put her name on it as a screen 
as a screenwriter, which I which I can believe. But you know, this idea. So it's kind of funny. This one time fake did another fakery again. This time yeah. uh, using a. I mean, this is allegedly. I can't uh, prove it, but I've heard from like different people in uh, movies and screenwriting circles that that's the open open secret. And it's like if. People didn't require authenticity or elevate it. Maybe James Fry Fry could have just made a novel and not have had to, uh, you know, felt like he had to prove he was some kind of uh, real life addict to sell his fiction because that's what this book was. Or, you know, use some black woman as a front to tell this other story, you know. But yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the ironies of the overcorrection. I just think it's, you know what I think it's like? This is exactly what I think it's like. Uh, they say sociopaths can't go to therapy because if they go, they just learn to be uh, better sociopaths. I feel like the authenticity yeah. thing just told people who they had to be to tell the story instead of actually opening the door to more uh, real authenticity. It just taught them how to fake uh, certain things to get away with writing about certain things. Well, that's, that's sort of, um, that's not really that much of a surprise in that, I mean, James Fry you know, there was a sort of public shaming and, and scandal and Oprah like spanked him on live television or whatever. And and there was this sort of um, sense of, okay, well, now that's taken care of. We're never going to hear from him again. And then he immediately, you know, um, started publishing YA novels um, and other sorts of, he had like a factory of workers, like a factory of writers <laughs> pumping out these sort of like, you know, um, young adult series novels. And then the woman who was behind the J.T. Leroy fraud, who was claiming to be a um, a transgender writer uh, who was working as a, you know, like an underage prostitute at a truck stop and writing memoirs about this. And it was just like some lady from the suburbs. Um, she works in TV now. I can't remember which show she's attached to, but it's I think it's... I don't think it's Succession, but it's something like Succession, like a like a prestige show. Oh, Billions, right, I think. And so, yeah, so it's, even though there's this sort of moment of revelation and shaming and, and, and so on, these people just sort of move into another area and keep <laughs> feeding these stories into our culture. There's nothing we can actually do about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They just keep feeding into the culture and people just keep finding end runs um, around it. And like, I think one thing that's kind of interesting about the whole imposter thing, the imposter syndrome and how rampant all this kind of, is there a verb form of imposting? I don't know, but all this fake, <laughs> all this fakery and this is why I think we were kind of getting at when we brought up when you, when you brought up the first time. But I think what you're bringing up in connection to was this idea that uh, there's like levels to being an imposter. You can ha you can have the right identity and still be an imposter. You can be a woman but not have the background or life of the type of woman that you're writing about, you know. Mm -hmm. And you're using like say plight of uh, poor women to to and pretending that you're poor. You know, so mm -hmm. people will think the imposter is the is the man who pretends to be a woman. Uh, for example, the story of the Elena Ferrante, I think that's another good one. Uh, yeah, the, the person who wrote what, what is it called again? My brilliant friend that that yeah. name that Nepal. Uh, actually, can you can you talk about that? Because you actually brought that that thing to my attention. Yeah. So um, a couple of years ago, it was revealed, or like lightly revealed. It was suggested strongly backed up with a lot of evidence that uh, Elena Ferrante, who um, 
Yeah, who wrote the My Brilliant Friend series, uh, which is, you know, an HBO show now and huge bestsellers. And she's, you know, regularly sort of now mentioned as possibility for a Nobel Prize and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, she has been very protective of her identity and says that, you know, her name is a pseudonym and she doesn't want to reveal who she is. She would prefer to work in anonymity. And so a journalist basically did some <laughs> um, digging into tax records and found that it is most likely a married couple writing the books. Um, and primarily it is the, um, the man who is responsible for the material um, because he comes from this background uh, in Napoli that is the setting of most of the books. And he has the same sort of, you know, economic background of a lot of the characters. And so the um, it's generally assumed that it, he's telling the stories and his wife sort of cleans it up or whatever. I find this objectionable <laughs> um, mostly because of the interviews that Ferrante does, um, basically saying that women should um, not get married, not have children. They should close off their emotional lives in order to concentrate on their own ambitions and genius. I mean, it is very sort of like, I think it was Dominic Green, um, the um, the critic who said, this is very Hillary Clinton pantsuit nation sort of rhetoric. Um, but honestly, when I read the, that interview, that was the first time I was like, this is, this is, this is someone who's either married or this is a man saying this because only women who are married tell other women not to get married. <laughs> like only women who have the protection of, um, uh, of sort of like, you know, the, the relationship with the state that comes from marriage and men's sort of, um, wealth and privilege only they are like oh you should never get married <laughs> like everybody else is like i would please like some rights i'm begging you for some rights um so yeah the ferrante thing is very is very funny but it definitely lines up with what the culture was very hungry for which is a sort of angry spinster independent and and confident in her own genius and of course it turns out that a man is behind that project and like this this weird kind of meta narrative like they're not just buying into the story inside the book but you know the story behind the book and i find it mm -hmm. interesting in that it used to not be common to know things about the people who wrote things like to the degree mm -hmm. that we kind of expect like I think in this age of publicity and media and everything, the story behind the person and the personality that creates it is almost more important than the actual work itself. Like you can almost just put anything together. And as long as you make an engaging story behind it, people won't even really remember the work. Like, like we've talked about this with different things about how a lot of times there's this feeling that people are buying into works or reading works or doing things because they like the idea of the person who um, did it mm -hmm. being successful because they see themselves in that person. And not only does the story not matter, but it's almost prefer preferable for it to be mediocre because that makes the fantasy even more vibrant. Like if this person um, writes this brilliant, amazing amazingly talented story it's not easy to project yourself into the fantasy because you're like shit i have to learn 
how to actually write, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how to have <laughs> something, to, something to say and mm-hmm. learn how to think. But if the person does something kind of mediocre and forgettable and it gets called genius and it's something that you look at and you say, um, I can do that, you know, and also I'm good at promoting myself on social media like this person. It's very, it's very um, alluring. So, yeah, I just find it interesting how now it's not only that we know more about the authors than ever before, but that's almost like the real story these days. Even in interviews and reviews, they'll spend as much time talking about what the author overcame to write the book and, you know, where where the person... And then the, the reviewer will say something like, you know, as a, you know, disabled, uh, transgender, indigenous person, I felt this about the book, which was about, you know, indigenous people. And they kind of make it clear about the identification and wish fulfillment that mm-hmm. happens with the author. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of fell for it with Ferrante, I have to say, that... Um there was, and and it seems now, sort of looking back, very sort of managed um, in you know, sort of scoping the gap between what exists in uh, the realm of the arts versus what's happening sociologically. So you know, in, in the sort of era of turn of the century, you have women gaining power, gaining representation, but you don't see that reflected in the art world necessarily. That's still dominated by all of the Jonathans and, you know, whatever's <laughs> whatever's going on with Martin Amos that particular week. Um, and so you, you do see this gap for just like a, a feisty, um, independent woman making her own way in the world. And then, and then yeah, and so then you... Then you enter the marketplace with your consumable good to meet a demographic that has not yet been sort of defined, let alone satisfied, and you flood it with your material. And yeah, I mean, of course, it's a sensation. Of course, it's millions of dollars and TV adaptations and prizes and all the rest of it. But And at the moment, it doesn't seem, because it seems like it's coming out of nowhere, it just seems sort of fresh and perfect for the moment. And you don't see the sort of scheming that goes on behind it until after. <laughs> and then it just looks like, oh, <laughs> like I've really been played. So, yeah. But no, let me ask you this. As far as being um, played, do you, does your opinion of the book change? Like, for example, if is it like the story behind the book made you buy a bad book and lie to yourself about its quality? Or do you think the book is good? And that um, even though you were played by the backstory, it was still a good book. Because I didn't read the book. I watched the TV series, which is not the same. But I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the story in the TV series. So I bought the book. And I just haven't gotten around to reading it yet. It's like yeah. uh, five books away. But I mean, I can't lie. It's an engaging story. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. like unlike a lot of these other things where the person is kind of a fake or whatever and then you know you find out they were using the authenticity to hide a lack of talent i can't speak to the guy's actual pro skills because i didn't read the book but the story does seem to be a very engaging engaging uh story and i was wondering uh since you seem to have read the book what your thoughts are about the quality of the book both before and after you found out about the imposture so i didn't read um I didn't read the Brilliant Friend series until after I found out um, that she was probably a fake. 
Um, and it was her book, I think it's called The Lost Daughter, that I felt really attached to, which is basically just about a woman who doesn't want kids, right? And um, But she's kind of um, ferocious about it, and she's very um, cynical and funny and a little wild. And there was a sense, because of the moment that the literary uh, industry was in, that yeah, this is a voice that I've been missing. And this is something that I can relate to. And, and yeah, and I totally, I really loved that book. And I, and I recommended it to, to everybody. And I reviewed it, I think for NPR. And I, you know, like I was really kind of um, proselytizing about it. And, and then it was around the time that she became super famous with the My Brilliant Friend series and started doing interviews about you shouldn't get married and all that kind of stuff that I was like, I, I, this is, this isn't. Mm -mm." And it started to. Wait, wait, how are they doing? How are they doing interviews? I'm guessing they were like. Yeah. So they only email, only over email. Um, or written correspondence or something like that. Um, yeah, and it was, she supposedly wants to maintain her anonymity. She wants to maintain her sense of privacy. She doesn't want to give up her private life um, in the pursuit of fame and whatever. And that just became um, silly at some point. Um, but, uh, like, there was an interview that she supposedly uh, recently gave with um, Marina Abramovich. Um, that I guess was like a, I guess written out like letters they were sending each other. And it's just like, we all know, we all know you're a man. Like, <laughs> just, please just stop it. But, um, but that's also when- the interesting thing is that people reject the revelation. People reject the unveiling. They've decided that this article, there was a huge backlash against the, I think it was the New York review of books that published it in the United States. And there was a huge backlash against it. And people are now just carrying on as if it was never, as if it never happened. They still refer to her as a she. They're, it's like Spider-Man when they put the mask back on or something. Like, I don't yeah. know. I haven't seen it, but I've seen it referenced. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it seems to be that um, that thing is like, we don't want to know that our... Um, our hero, this woman that we need to exist, we need a genius woman writer to exist... Um, so we're not going to believe that this is a man. So it just hit me what scene you're talking about, in case people are confused. Uh, Spider-Man 2, on the train, the mask <laughs> goes off, and then all the people in New York just pretend they didn't see it, and they just hand him back the mask, and he just puts it back on, and they just, you know, kind of knowingly, like, you know, we're not going to tell, uh, you're not going to tell, let's just... Act like this didn't happen and we didn't see your face. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it reminds me of, too, I mean, people who've listened to this show for a while know this reference and, you know, probably sick of it. But every episode is somebody's first, so I'm going to use the reference again anyway. But uh, there's this um, <laughs> old book called When Prophecy Fails. And it's this oh, I guy, love that book. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. you, you know the book. Okay, yeah. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so you know the premise. Uh, this guy, this psychologist is following around doomsday cults with specific predictions about the end of the world. And he's just waiting to see uh, Leon Festinger. He's waiting to see what are these guys going to do when the date come and, comes and goes and the end of the world doesn't happen. And, you know, it ends up, you know, not happening. The date comes and goes. The end of the world doesn't happen. And instead of, you know, people getting disillusioned and quitting the cult, like, 
most of the people not only stay on, but they double down on the belief because it's like mm-hmm. a sunk cost trap. They've they've given up their family, their friends, their lives, and everything uh, to invest in this in this cult. So mm-hmm. they have too much to. They've lost too much for it to not be true. So they they get actually they panic at the idea that you know we wasted our all these resources and and invested all this capital. And I feel like what you're describing is. The resources are like time, emotion, mm-hmm. social capital, uh, money they spent, you know. But uh, I mean, emotional investment, I mean, it is an investment. The word investment is right there. Like people feel like they're going to lose that emotional investment if they don't um, continue this thing that, that they are committed to. But it's it's kind of crazy because like something like Madame Bovary, it's one of my favorite uh books and mm-hmm. you know it's written by this uh middle class uh french guy you know <laughs> yeah. but a lot of people think it really captured the emotions and mindset of a certain type of type of woman and i'm like you know what would happen today you know like i mean if he was alive today would he have to do one of these fakeries or would he be called out for ruining the mis- the, the representations it's kind of a weird thing that yeah no, it really is, and it and it's also strange that the um, so I think it was the Dominic Green piece about this, like tracked the money of it, and it so this this man that's probably behind the fronte, and I keep saying probably because like nobody's admitted anything, and there's it's like, it's like, like allegedly you just got to say it. Yeah, yeah. There's like a ton of um, financial records to show that this is the case, but it's not. Yeah. So probably the guy that is behind all of the Ferrante novels, um, you know, published very similar works under his own name and nothing really happened. You know, very sort of modest sales and so on. Then comes the construction of the Ferrante uh, persona um, of the very independent woman, uh, don't get married girls, um, you know, the pantsuit nation ambition, um, only, only care about your own work and creativity, um, sort of diatribes that she would go on. Um, and then of course the sales skyrocket. So it's not that he didn't, you know, he tried it. He tried publishing as himself and it didn't work out. This, um, which he seems to be, have been very savvy about him and his wife, very savvy, savvy about like what the sort of market wanted at that time. And he found, of course, international acclaim. And the interesting thing also is that they're not really huge sellers in Italy. Um, that the, a lot of what they're also sort of selling is this, um, sort of fantasy of working class Italian life that is very sort of disconnected from how Italians actually live. And so Italians don't necessarily read these books. The sales are much lower there than they are in other countries. So it's not just that they're selling an idea of womanhood. They're also selling an idea of what it's like to be poor or forgotten or working class in Italy. Um, and that- sort of lines up with like movies that people have seen. So, yeah. Yeah. They're also, uh, there's a social science term for what you just described. Uh, the book is called The Tourist, but I forgot who wrote it. I think it's a guy's name is 
Dean McCannell or something, but he had this interesting sociological study on uh, tourism. And Mm -hmm. he comes up with this idea called the traveler and the tourist. And the tourist is the person who wants to go abroad. But when they go abroad, they look for McDonald's. They look for, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower and the obvious places. They look for the tourist traps. They don't really want anything authentic. They stay in the hotel. They uh, go on the tour bus, you know. And then the traveler is someone who craves authenticity. So the traveler goes and they're like, they're the person who wants to backpack through uh, Vietnam or Europe. They're the ones who want to mm-hmm. stay in the hostels. So they want to be in an Airbnb and live in an apartment building. So they feel like they're really, you know, they want to go like, where do the locals go? What do the locals do? I want to have an authentic yeah. experience. What do the locals eat? I don't want this tourist trap stuff. And the concept that um, he came up with is that, you know, these first, these usually first world people, you know, go to these places and they end up changing the places that they interact with in in return. Like, you know, like, like they mm-hmm. think they can just go there and just, you know, be like invisible or not. Or you know, not alter the alter the thing, but like they act upon it, and it acts upon upon them, and they actually change the experience. So what happens is, if enough of them keep coming, then what develops is something that he calls uh, staged authenticity, where the locals start giving the people what they realize they're looking for as is authentic. So the locals start faking this. There's all these things. So they're actually visiting as much of a lie as the tourists, even though they look down the tourists. Like, like you know, they're basically tourists in disguise. Like, like they don't know enough to know that they're being sold, like, uh, you know, this this fake authenticity. Yeah, so he called it uh, staged, staged authenticity. And I think that ties into kind of um, the whole imposter thing as, as well. Because sometimes you don't have to be an other to be an imposter. Like to a certain mm-hmm. degree, those locals are acting as imposters of their actual identity. You know, like like uh I'm Vietnamese, but I'm not showing you the real Vietnam. I'm pretending the real Vietnam and what I do every day is something different, you know, because I know that's what you think uh this is. And her writing, I mean or his writing or their writing, whatever the pronoun right. <laughs> yeah, is uh is a form of staged authenticity. Yeah, but the locals don't do the staged authenticity stuff themselves, you know. It's for yeah. it's for the tourists. Only the tourists, uh, you know, believe that it's real. Yeah, there's the, the great anecdote about Lady Gregory, uh, the heiress, uh, who was traveling around Western Ireland gathering fairy stories and and folk tales and, and so on. And when she would walk into the bar, people would switch from English to Gaelic <laughs> to pretend <laughs> like this was a pure, pure part of Ireland. Um, and then just like make up fucking stories. Um, and then she would leave and everyone would switch back to English. But yeah, no, it's very, <laughs> it's, it's a sort of universal phenomenon, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty funny. It's, it's, it's like he used it in terms of, uh, you know, with, with, tourism but i think it applies to so many things like it, mm-hmm. it, it applies to things like gentrification like uh they they wipe out all the old graffiti to make it you know uh less gritty and less you mm-hmm. know uh so-called hood or urban but then after a while if it gets too clean a lot of people who want to move to brooklyn or these places they kind of want some of the grit they're like oh we could be in manhattan uh if 
it was just going to be like this bunch of condos and super clean. So then they start paying art collectors, not actual real graffiti. Like like they, they wipe out the original graffiti that was done by like the locals because they said it's mm-hmm. uh, tacky and ugly. Then, you know, you have like a bunch of like yuppies looking for adventure and suddenly you pay like some art school students to put up a new fake uh, graffiti and it never looks like real graffiti like it's it's too polished it's too mm-hmm. expensive looking the you know it's 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 uh it looks like graffiti but it doesn't it looks like a uh etsy uh picture you know it's it's really yeah, really phony yeah it obviously and, took too long they weren't worried about somebody calling the cops like yeah, yeah exactly exactly it was clearly commissioned you were given all the time in the world to uh work on it and i think that's what you know a lot of these people do, even when they have the right identity, they're like those 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 locals, like those Irish people. They weren't lying about being Irish; they were Irish, but they were, you know, imposters of themselves, of their own yeah. identities. And one of the things that we were talking about, not on the air, I was sharing with you a article written by a friend and and a friend of the show and former guest Jason England, where mm-hmm. he was like, "Why was Jessica Krug?" the academic who pretended to be a black woman, why was she so good fooling everybody? And mm-hmm. part of the reason why she was able uh, to fool everybody so well, and Jason, if you're listening, I hope I don't butcher the paraphrasing of your article, but, you know, is that a, a lot of the people who were actually black were kind of imposters themselves. They were, mm-hmm. they were like melanated imposters, you know? So they were kind of... Um, faking and staging authenticity. So they weren't even really qualified to call out this white woman. And what was even funnier is I think she actually recognized them as frauds. She would kind of uh, metaphorically punk them for their lunch money. They would, she would like accuse them of being phonies, uh, not being quote unquote, like real Mm -hmm. black people or not being authentic. And she would gaslight them and they would, you know, fall for it, you know, because like she couldn't have done it to somebody who was, uh, not an apostle was secure in their identity, but you know, they were conned by her because they were kind of conning um, themselves. It's one of the problems with representation. If all you care about is that the person has the right skin or the right gender or whatever, and you as the white person gatekeeping don't have the authenticity to really judge, just like the traveler doesn't have the authenticity himself to really judge. He's experiencing staged authenticity or not. Like these gatekeepers don't have the criteria to tell. They let people in based on superficials because these people are imposters. This actual white woman comes in and she's doing the same thing just without the actual uh, genetic phenotype. And she actually gaslights them and they and they go for it. And a bunch of them came out after the fact uh, sharing their like horror stories about this woman. They're like, oh, I can't believe this woman. She had me doubting my blackness and my authenticity i'm like that's a horrible thing to admit because you're kind of admitting that you shouldn't really be the voice of this identity yourself if this white woman can can do that to you right i mean there's so obviously i think an element uh then of of class of people who don't feel connected to an authentic sense of their community um because they are upper class, which allows you disconnection, right? It allows you to uh, float free of ties of tradition or cultural expectations or family expectations. Um, 
and to sort of reinvent yourself. And so a lot of the people that are sort of drawn in by these frauds are people who their primary connection to the group um, is through fantasy or through movies or other sort of um, artistic representations of what it's like to be Irish or a woman or black or whatever. Like we, we have a lot of us, um, these very um, limited ideas of what it means to belong to these communities based on entertainment Um, because through education or just through career advancement or economic advancement, we're not confined in these spaces anymore and we're free to um, discard some of the traditions that would give meaning or at least um, uh, boundaries, I guess, to our identity. And so then, yeah, it's harder to then um, define authenticity if we're going to a university, if we're working class and now we're at Yale, right? Like that's that's a very... strange and difficult connection to maintain through that process of education. Um, Or even, you know, if you're, you know, there's so much written about um, the difficult connections between the diaspora and um, the place of origin, you know, how all the Irish hate Irish Americans and so on. Like there's real tension there um, because people are sort of like claiming belonging to a group that doesn't recognize them. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's so complicated in the way that um, TV shows and movies and this idea of representation interferes with that process and that um, relationship, I think, is not well understood. And it's clearly a form of distortion. And um, um, I liked... Um, from the Jason England piece, uh, uh, I noted this down um, in my notebook, um, that a distinctly white capitalist gaze has taught Black people how to perform Blackness. And I kept thinking about this anecdote that I read um, in this uh, history of Hollywood that said that the way that gangsters in the 1940s in America dressed and spoke and um, behaved themselves was completely um, taken from and inspired by Hollywood movies about the gangsters. And nothing to do with like any sort of um, their own relationships, their own communities or whatever. Like Hollywood made up this fantasy of how a gangster is supposed to look and behave. And then the gangsters changed their behavior in order to meet those expectations um, with the spats and the, you know, the pinstripes and all the rest of it and the, the sort of lingo of it. Um, and that to, that's very interesting to me. And I, and I don't feel like that comes up in the conversation enough. Yeah. There's even a, uh, book. I haven't actually read the book yet, but it's, uh, it's called Life the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality by uh, Neil Gabler. And he kind of pretty much talks about that, about the ways that, uh, you know, capitalist media has actually changed the things that it's um, depicting, like the things that it's mm-hmm. supposedly observing. It kind of creates, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people make similar arguments and some of them will be kind of like disturbing. Like, for example, I was reading one guy who said, 
I forget where I read this one from, but they said that uh, a lot of uh, black comedy and black culture uh, is hopelessly intertwined with stuff that came out of minstrel shows and blackface shows. Mm. Because the white people were observing black people and creating like a caricature of them, you know, and then those things kind of became tropes and they were wearing blackface. But then they started replacing them with black actors in blackface. Mm-hmm. Then the black actors took off the blackface, but a lot of the routines were still the same. So I, on YouTube, I was watching a lot of minstrel um, comedy. I was kind of curious to see what it was like, a lot of black, blackface comedy. And I could see a lot of tropes that I grew up with in black humor, like, you know, a lot of like these kind of dozens and a lot of different things. And I started thinking, okay, if if people like Scatman Crothers and a lot of these um, other actual black vaudevillians who were part of the transition from the white uh, blackface routines into their own interpretation of the same routines, like, and then black people growing up, grow up with it and act it out at home and it becomes part of the culture. So the thing was making a kind of disturbing uh, implication that, you know, a lot of what we think of as black entertainment tropes, uh, it's hard to figure out what came from white people imitating black people and what came from, you know, authentically from from the culture. Because the white people themselves had to be observing something as as well. But yeah, I mean, it's that same give and take that between the observer and the observed, you know, where the observer changes what's being observed by observing, uh, you know, that we were talking about with the stage authenticity thing with the, you know, it's a, I don't know, just, I'm, I'm just adding on to the mafia uh, example. I, I think you can probably see it in a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, well, this is one of the things that bothers me about these conversations around something like I May Destroy You to, like, kind of circle back, um, which is that these projects become not just about creating art or entertainment. It becomes about um, education. Like, this is what sexual harm looks like this is what consent looks like or whatever because it's clearly distorted and um clearly um being warped in order to meet the expectations of how a narrative works and what we're entertained by and so when we're i understand that we don't have that much in our you know the breakdown of the public square and the breakdown of the educational system and and so on like Entertainment can't possibly replace all of this, but people seem to be trying. And so to me, you know, these 12 episodes that are tracking all these various forms of what sexual harm is in the spectrum of it from, you know, um, not fully disclosing your sexual history to the partner that you're having a one night stand with to, um, to, you know, drugging and raping somebody in the bathroom. Um, I don't know. Like, it just seems inappropriate. It just seems like the wrong space to be having these conversations because we know how how these this media um, distorts distorts things and, and creates um, these strange examples that are mimicked and... Um, treated more seriously, I think, than they really deserve. One thing that's going to be weird about this episode is I'm going to criticize a lot of things about I May Destroy You, but ironically, I 
when I w- finished it, I felt like, you know, I kind of like this. I'm kind of glad <laughs> I watched it. And I know people are going to listen and they're going to be like, how can you have this many complaints about it? But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to say you liked it. But it was like, despite a lot of its flaws, and I don't know if this is fair. I don't know if it's because I had such groomed expectations from so much of this bad uh, staged authenticity, didactic, yeah. after school special stuff that... Just the fact that it wasn't as bad or didactic or, you know, whatever as it could be. I was forgiving, you know, too much of it or whatever. But I do feel it was better than I went in expecting. And I'll, you know, give full transparency. Uh, I was talking with uh, Jessica about the first four. I was talking to Jessa about the first four episodes of the show. And I was making a lot of negative assumptions because I just felt I know this show. This is going to be just a British Easter Ray type of show. It's going to be a, you know, think piece theater. It's it's going to be Mm -hmm. homework TV, you know, whatever. And to a certain degree, it was a little, but it at least tried to follow to a large degree. Show don't tell. You know, it at least tried to have an attention span where the an episode near the end actually brings up something from episode one. Like I noticed a lot of shows just don't really do that anymore. They just, each episode is tweet is treated like a filmed Twitter thread of the day. Then it moves on to the next thing and they, you know, don't really have a coherent narrative. But I do agree with a lot of what you said about how this might not be the medium ultimately to, to do it because one thing that I had a problem with among other things that we'll talk about is it does seem to kind of treat rape as a vehicle for self-actualization. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I mean, I get, I guess they want to show that she reclaimed the story and, you know, made it her own and reclaimed her trauma, but it basically made it seem like, Hey, if you get, if you get raped, you will have a great best-selling book story to tell yeah. that, you know, that you won't have if you just use your imagination, you know? Yeah, I, ha- I have to agree that um, that it didn't go in the place that I thought it was going to go. And for that, I am grateful because I feel like generally with television these days, I see the first 10 minutes and I I already know the next eight hours. <laughs> like I can, I can already tell you what's going to happen, what the main trajectory is going to be. Um, and so it allowed these stories of uh, trauma and harm to be messier than what is usually allowed on television. And I did appreciate that part of it. But the the main trajectory being, you know, it starts with her being raped and it ends with her with a celebrated book, right? And in and in the middle, she's trying to construct a narrative of recovery and you know therapeutic um, understanding and, and and so on. And ultimately, yeah, it's like, well, aren't you lucky that you got raped and now you have a very important book to uh, bring to the world? And that I just I that makes me feel sad deep in my soul. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was so strange because I kind of liked the episode in spite of it. I was, I was very conflicted about it. Like, it's, I don't know if I'm ready to say that the show was good, but it had good stuff in it, you know? And I feel one thing I'll say that I didn't change my mind on 
was I still think it was too long. It did not need yeah. to be twelve episodes. Uh, yeah, there were like three storylines that I, I couldn't figure out why they were even there. Yeah, yeah, and there was in the first four episodes uh, when I was watching them, I was telling you about all these problems and these conflicted messaging and the mistake that I was doing. In my assumption, I'm so used to anything depicted nowadays being an endorsement. Like, you know, mm-hmm. people aren't able, for whatever reason nowadays, to write a character that is not like wish fulfillment and in, and an endorsement of their own lifestyle and views. So there was a lot of like recklessness of the characters, you know, where, well, well first, I'm going to say this, even though the end, the remaining eight episodes got better, I feel like around five to the end, it got better. They didn't get mm-hmm. better in the way they made the first four episodes, you know, like the first four episodes. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were still an unpleasant watch. Like, there's some things where you're watching something, you think, oh, this is bad. But then later on, there's a twist or an explanation mm-hmm. that makes you say, oh, wow, this was actually good in the beginning all along. I didn't know. Whereas the feeling I had, and I can't speak for you, so I'm interested in what, what you think. But the feeling I had was, oh, so a lot of these things that I was criticizing as being uh, sloppy or inexplicable or carelessly forgotten actually did have a point but they were still bad mm-hmm. episodes you know and i think there's a better way there was a better way to do it but I'm, I'm at least grateful that they didn't drop the ball in terms of following up on those things and just to list a couple of those things and if you have any of your own examples that are different you can uh uh add them after but you know there was how there was a little too much like hey everywhere i'm going i'm getting raped like you know it's like i'm like mm-hmm. okay these three friends just keep getting raped everywhere they go. Like, I yeah, felt like they were like, they were like weirdly in close pro- close proximity. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. But then later on, uh, the uh, I forget Arabella character says like, "Why do I keep getting raped everywhere I go? Is something wrong with me?" So I'm like, okay, at least they're conscious of that. It's kind of weird that she just has these two rapes, like you know, side side by side, or very close together. And mm-hmm. and there were, there were like other things where, like for example. I was like, why do people walking around by themselves all the time and constantly leaving each other places yeah. and having like no buddy system? But near the end, they kind of caught each other um, out about that. And then I was thinking like, what does it mean that these people are so reckless as far as taking all these drugs and drinking and doing all this stuff and then just walking around by themselves? Like, are they like trying to endorse reckless behavior? Are they trying to make some kind of point about even if you do this crazy, reckless stuff, no one deserves to get raped. And I'm like, I agree with that, but this almost seems like it's endorsing it. And I ended up being wrong. They they actually uh, drink less and, you know, think about all the ways they've contributed to each other's and their own uh, lack of safety. But part of the problem is there's just a big gap in between those first four episodes and mm-hmm. the, like, the last two or three episodes where they finally addressed this stuff. So you just think they forgot this stuff or it was pointless. And I was wondering like if you had any type of similar or different experience. Yeah. Well, that was sort of the, um, when I first watched it or tried to watch it and I gave up after four episodes, um, my reason for giving up was just like, is everybody on this show going to get raped by the end of it? Because it was just like setting up. And I think that's just like naive, storytelling or whatever is just like to front load in order to, I don't know, like catch attention or whatever, be scandalous and exciting um, is just to front load everything. But, 
but yeah, it was after the, after the um, the the man of the of the group got raped. I was just like, yeah, I'm out the first time, and so I had to force myself to sort of continue through the second time. Um, and yeah, I mean, they kind of. They kind of bring it up and try to resolve some of the storylines, but ultimately the the episodes feel like I'm watching like one of those corporate don't sexually harass people videos. Like yeah. don't don't violate somebody's boundaries and take the condom off in the middle of sex. Like, you know, um, this is what not to do. <laughs> don't slip drugs into somebody's drink. <laughs> I think they waited too long to just follow up on so many things. Like I like- know, yeah. Let's, let's yeah. to give you two other examples I just remembered because you reminded me of them just now. Um, the one about the guy getting raped, right? Like, I remember you and I were talking because we first talked about this after the first four episodes. We were almost like a support group, like a buddy system. I was like, I'll push through this if you push through this because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not enjoying this either and I really want to um, quit. Like, 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 I think we both quit on Underground Railroad. We both just agreed. You know what? Let's just talk about the show without sitting through the rest of this because this is like awful. But uh, <laughs> we went through it and a lot of things I brought up were, you know, uh, eventually tied in, but like very near the end. Like I remember I told you, okay, the guy that, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on, oh, oh, uh, Kwame, the guy that Kwame mm-hmm. goes to see is uh, so obviously rapey. Like the only thing missing is like right. a, for- a forehead tattoo or a t-shirt that says I heart rape. Like that's the only yeah. thing that could have made this any less subtle. Like he's so sleazy and rapey. And it's like, okay, it's so telegraphed. This guy is going to, um, you know, rape him. And then his friend, you know, as usual with everyone else on the show, just leaves him behind. He mm-hmm. sees him trying to pull some slick, stealthy, rapey stuff. Like, you know, and he's, and he still leaves him alone with the guy afterwards you know <laughs> i'm like okay these people are crazy and then like the second to last or last episode you know they kind of address that in that he makes bad choices because he's always choosing the easy sex so he ends up being in a room with someone who's the polar opposite and he can't respect it like the guy is like no i don't want to have sex i just want to talk and this guy's clearly a class act so i'm like okay they kind of realize or it's on purpose that this guy has such low self-esteem that he looks for people who treat him bad and can't handle or feel like he deserves being treated good. And then he goes to, uh, he talks to somebody, I think it's the uh, white roommate. And what's interesting was, I found it interesting that this, this show had a magic Caucasian. Like the roommate yes. is a magic <laughs> Caucasian. Like he's a white magical yeah. Negro. And I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, this guy usually fills the role of the black best friend in the movie, like no interiority, no real personal life, no range of emotion. No exteriority just, either. Like, you know, he never really Yeah, he never leaves the anything. house. He, yeah. Yeah. He's like the he's like the Will Smith character or the Green Mile character. Like he's just um just this white this magical Caucasian who just uh you know helps the minority characters self-actualize. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if she did that deliberately, but it was funny. But you know, he tells him yeah, you know, have you ever, or maybe told one of the girlfriends, but I thought it was him. Have you ever felt like you found someone that's uh, perfect for you, but you don't think you're the right person yet that you need to be, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to deserve them and everything? And I was like, okay, that explains why he just ignored all the red flags of this 
rapey guy like in episode two or whatever but you've just dropped this bombshell with no addressing in the middle in the second to last episode like okay so that could have been a whole narrative arc he could have met the good guy like in the middle of the series and we could have seen that growth and the same with the girl who gets with the trans guy so one of the complaints mm-hmm. i made to you was okay this show is about like rape and all this stuff but um these guys basically raped uh that girl by the logic of this show that you know rape is a is a spectrum and whatever so anything any sex gained under dubious or false pretenses is is you know rape so i'm like okay these two guys lied about being friends and concocted this uh story to uh get a threesome with her and they mm-hmm. show her looking outside of them leaving together and i'm like okay she can have a realization and they just don't talk about it then like the second half of the second to last episode she meets like a yeah. trans man and a trans man just unlocks over her he goes oh that was staged you were like kind of raped and it's like okay anyway i'm happy forever after with this trans man and i'm like okay so this is <laughs> two weird wrap-ups like these two people have these traumatic experiences that speak a lot to their horrible self-esteem and whatever. And it's not really explored very well, you know, why they made mm-hmm. those bad decisions. So you just left to think, okay, this show just writes dumb people. Then you show, oh, actually, this was all on purpose. This was meant to show this, but I'm just backloading it in the last episode and a half. And they're going to meet the right people. And it takes a lot of growth to go from um, choosing jerks and bad people to realizing you deserve good people and they just kind of rushed it all at the end and the pacing was really really weird weird. yeah yeah i mean because there's such a huge gap between these two like you know the the threesome and then the revelation about the threesome and it's just like oh right yeah no right she had a she had a threesome (laughs) in the first episode um so yeah no it's um i don't think it's that yeah, I mean, it's just like bad storytelling, right? That that part of it, um, and there is a lot of that. There's so much of that throughout throughout the entire show. Is just these moments of um, they were clearly trying to do too much. It was weird how relentlessly to the point of boredom. Some stories were pursued, and then others were just sort of like all of a sudden dropped in. Um, out of nowhere to the point that it was confusing. Like her stuff with her dad um, was just like one one sort of episode. All of a sudden it's like, oh, and then we've dealt with the dad issues and now we can sort of move on to healing or whatever. It's just like, I don't know. It was just, I appreciate the messiness of the characters, but the messiness of the storytelling and what it was trying to, what its intentions were and what it was ultimately trying to say um, I found not just confusing, but occasionally objectionable, primarily with the whole, like, I mean, the, the sort of story with the, um, the publishing industry in general, I thought was such, such a mess and could have been so interesting. Like she's in the middle of this book, uh, that she's writing for a high profile publishing company when she's raped and there's there are a couple of exchanges where the publisher is like, well, can you just write about your rape? Like they're excited that she was raped, that this could be like a real sort of um, uh, high profile book for them. But then they don't support her 
um, financially or emotionally to actually be able to tell that story. And that sort of just dropped. Um, and that's not in, investigated in a way that felt um, interesting or new. It was just these sort of like small interactions that didn't really go anywhere where I thought that that could be, uh, you know, because I thought that the one thing that was handled the best was um, the way that she used social media to sort of prop up was clearly um, a kind of ego and breakdown. Oh, and that, like, that, that her rape happened at a bar called Ego Death, like... Oh, <laughs> bothered, yeah. Uh, bothered very me on the nose. so much. So on the nose. Um, but, you know, so when she feels threatened, when she feels insecure, when she feels uh, vulnerable, she goes on social media and presents as this sort of, um, you know, badass babe who's tearing down the patriarchy and that. And I thought that was really actually handled um, very well until until she just like deleted her accounts. And I was like, I don't think your publisher lets you do that, <laughs> actually. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it was just sort of like a mess. It was just sort of a mess and it didn't know what it wanted to do. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. <laughs>